0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.
1: Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 8 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now today I'm delighted to say I am joined by a bevy of expertise and insight, So to discuss where we are now on culture in financial services, I'm joined by Mike Cowan, Lindsay Rogerson, and Rachel Walcott. Hello there. Hi there. Hello. (laughs) Now, after the last few years, culture has become simply part of the regulatory lexicon, with hardly a speech going by without a regulator calling for firms to improve their culture and usually approach to conduct or misconduct risk. Now, this regulatory focus isn't in the formal black and white of any rulebook, and alongside the implementation of personal accountability regimes, has led firms to try to create metrics to measure culture. After all, you can only manage what you have line of sight to and can measure. So, how do you measure culture? It's utterly qualitative, totally dependent on context, But that hasn't stopped firms creating entire cottage industries around cultural indicators and metrics. So let's start with some possible cultural indicators. Rachel, Bank of England is talking about unobtrusive indicators. Um, What are they talking about there?
0: Okay. Hi, Susanna. Uh, Yes, cultural indicators super interesting, and I, just before we get to the PRA, Bank of England paper, I just wanted to note that there, in my opinion, is a profound gap between what firms and regulators consider to be cultural indicators. Firms tend to use tools that have been widely discredited at, discredited as pseudoscience at the worst and methodologically flawed at the best, but like you said, there's a cottage industry, So what they rely on are known as second-order indicators, uh, like staff and customer services. Firms love net promoter scores, which claim to measure customer experience and predict business growth. You'll see them all over their annual reports. Then there's the even more what I call flaky HR stuff, like Briggs-Myers personality tests, problem-solving challenges that firms think are going to see if people fit well into their culture. So that's sort of how they manage people coming in through the door. And like I said, companies of all shapes and sizes just love this stuff, but proper behavioral scientists and psychologists think they're rubbish because they're prone to bias and impression management. So essentially you can rig your staff survey to get the responses that you want. And Uh, Critics will say they're not not uh, representative, that people who respond to this stuff, you know, tend to be self-selective. And furthermore, people think that the culture they're in is normal. They have no idea that it might be terrible or might be great. They just think this is the way it is. But uh, like you said, this approach has been deployed on an industrial scale. And frankly, it's part of the problem because it tells senior managers and boards that everything is pretty good and they don't need to do a lot, which of course is what they want to hear. So getting to this recent uh, PRA, and Bank of England paper on unobtrusive, trusive cultural indicators, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, It also rubbishes these approaches that I just mentioned, and they are not the first. This... Paper instead sets out some ideas of where firms can use data that they may have already have and use it as an indicator of culture and specific kinds of uh, attributes that they might be looking for. Uh, Customer complaints is a big one. Whistleblowing, which we're going to talk a lot about, is another one. Uh, So whistleblowing and internal fraud data uh, is seen as a possible integrity indicator. And then there are custom reviews and employee reviews on websites like Glassdoor, that kind of thing. I mean, there's a ton of other stuff in the paper, but I'm gonna people can read it themselves. It's, it's an interesting read. It's not 100% new, but I think the interesting part here is that this is something that the regulators are talking about and they're putting out there. Um, what regulators do instead of sending out surveys and stuff, although I'm sure they do that, in terms of culture, they go for the direct observation route. So that means uh, saying what actually happens, what's going on. So based on conversations I've had with former regulators, I can tell you that a good supervisor is judging a firm's culture all the time. A couple of examples. One told me recently one former regulator that is that for them a great indicator of culture was how firms reacted when they were caught banged to rights by the regulator with a regulatory or compliance failure do they a call in a team of lawyers and a very pricey QC or B do they take immediate steps to remediate and work with the regulator um you know he said it's, it's pretty obvious if you're trying to kind of deny that This thing happens and kind of legal your way out of it. This is not a sign of a good culture. Um, Other regulators have said to me that they look at what senior managers are like as problem solvers. Do they, and this would go for board members too, do they get to the root of problems or do they take a nothing to see here approach? Do they say, oh, this is just a trivial thing. Don't worry about it. I'm sure it'll go away. That is like a warning sign. And another great example is when regulators do, uh, in branch mystery shops and yes, they do this (laughs) and they're going in, you know, I mean, these are like senior supervisors who, you know, potentially before they come in for a meeting, will stop in at your branch and see if the staff knows the basics of what they're doing. And, you know, they find out a lot of times that they don't, um, Another thing is the floor walk where regulators observe what's what's happening in the bank when they're there for a visit, go around. Although there have been instances reported where gay firms are now even trying to game and kind of stage manage floor walks to the surprise of no one. So my last point on this is that Roger Miles has a new book out called Culture, Audit, and Financial Services, which has a ton of examples of culture, culture indicators and a lot of super useful information on this topic. And I think that's a great starting point for people. They should definitely read it. Thank you very much, Rachel. Yes. I mean,
1: I would definitely recommend the Bank of England paper and I look forward to reading Roger's book. Um, Mike, picking up on one thing Rachel said, and, and I know Lindsay is going to talk about this some more, but Treatment of whistleblowers. Where are we on that?
2: Well, I think before I get to the um, the treatment of whistleblowers, and because I'm going to sort of do a handoff, um, um, a relay run here with with Lindsay. But let me say some things on the wider picture of culture and cultural indicators. Um, I think for I think my my overarching statement about culture is that it's the biggest uh, current challenge for financial services firms, and has been for the last ten years, and. Uh, And I say that with the knowledge um, of the fallout of the pandemic and and, uh, the actions that firms are having to take because of that. Uh, And also that since the global financial crisis, uh, you know, regulators have been um, looking at balance sheets and too big to fails and recovery and resolution and all that good stuff on the balance sheet side of things. But yet I still come to the conclusion that culture is one of the biggest uh, is the biggest challenge that financial services firms have to face at the moment. And I suppose that the reason for that um, is that, for, for the most part, um, as both you and Rachel have alluded to, that a lot of culture, and in particular indicators, are intangibles. It, um, and financial services firms don't do well when it comes to intangibles. If it's a straightforward concept that can be clearly articulated and there's a plethora of quite simple metrics, monetary or otherwise, uh, then financial services firms are far better at, di- at digesting and, and being compliant with those things, such as capital requirements, liquidity requirements, something that is tangible, something that, 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 that you know, a two plus two equals four on in many cases. But culture isn't like that. Culture isn't isn't a two plus two um um sum. And so, uh, and so when it comes to indicators, part of the um uh, of the difficulties with this intangibility, um, is if we look at some of the areas where 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 indicators could occur, and and trying to to measure these things um is uh well is not easy. I mean, for, for example. You know, when it comes to things like tone from the top, if you if you if you're trying to measure tone from the t- tone from the top, that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, there's no uh, a, there's no direct set of figures that will measure the tone from the top of your your organisation. And in fact, in in recent years, perhaps tone from the top has moved on. You know, I mean, because. Th- th- the regulators have been pushing the tone from the top message right from the get-go on culture and conduct. Uh, and so the boards of financial services firms are getting that message. And, but actually, the problem with culture and conduct and, and that sort of thing then goes a level down and it's, t- and it's toned from the middle. The, the, the middle management of the firm, are they getting the message? But again the, the, the concept still uh, the problem still occurs is how do you measure culture within that middle management how do you how, what are the indicators of good culture within a firm um reconciling the strategy and, and the culture and just just for clarity just let me just at this stage just let me go back uh, slightly and just just reaffirm the, the the definition that you uh that you um, um, placed in, in the introduction susanna Uh, And there's a number of of institutions around the world that have placed, you know, uh, uh, definitions on culture, what what that is. So here I'm trying to make the distinction between the strategy of the firm and the culture of the firm. And the culture of the firm, um, William Dudley, the the former president and chief executive of the the, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, described it as the implicit norms that guide behavior in the absence of regulations or, or, or compliance rules. And I think that's a very shrewd um, assessment. It's the it's the gap between the bricks. It's the it's the glue that puts everything together. It's the bit that regulations don't get at. But it's down to the firm or the individuals in the firm to make a judgment on what is right and what is wrong. Uh, the 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 UK's FCA describe culture as as the habitual behaviours and mindsets that characterise an organisation. Um, In in Australia, uh, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority referred to to a a more risk culture, Um, uh, again, focusing on the norms of behaviour of individuals and groups that shape the identity, understanding, uh, discussion, escalation, and and actions of of an entity. And finally, the the Insurance Association of Insurance Supervisors define, um, um, define culture as the set of norms, values, attributes and behaviours of an insurer uh, that character characterises the way in which the insurer conducts its activities so coming back to the point trying to evidence how that fits into the strategy of the firm and providing indicators of that is very difficult Um, and just a couple of other things before before I I, I touch on whistleblowing and hand off to Lindsay is you know things like personal accountability well, I suppose that the evidence and indicators of of senior management um, behaviours and responsibilities around culture has made a little bit been made a little bit more easier by the creation of the senior managers regimes and a bit more structure around that. But nevertheless, it's a very subjective area about what, what about um, whether a decision was made in in the culturally correct context. Uh, reward and performance management. Um, although monetary amounts of bonus and, and, and pay uh, can be easier to digest and, and, and easier to, to, to analyse, you know, this is, a, this is a, a, an area where a large chunk is, is subjective around senior managers' performance. Um, governance. Um, governance can be viewed through organisational structures, risk frameworks, um, but do the existence of these really indicate a strong culture or is that just good control? Is control and culture different? And then finally, we've got the the ever present uh, in all those definitions behaviors, you know, and how do you measure behaviors within a firm? Um, um, uh, Rachel alluded to to some of the metrics that are out uh, that are out there that you can use, but do firms use the, 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 these sort of things? And so coming coming uh, coming back to, to to the whistleblowing point, and to measure, I, I suppose the holy grail here is the word is 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 trying to make all this meaningful because as you both uh, you and rachel have alluded to a lot of work goes into collecting metrics to evidence these type of indicators um how meaningful they are is is questionable but but so actually do making these things meaningful is, is a very difficult thing th- thing to do i mean th- 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 and you know uh, the old adage of what cannot be, be measured cannot be managed comes to mind here. These things need to be measured in some way, albeit it's very difficult to do. Firms have come up with things like, from a governance per- perspective, the audit actions that have been completed on time, their attendance at governance committees. From a behaviours perspective, we've got you know customer complaints being upheld or, re- or, or rejected. Uh, reward and performance, the number of training days completed, you know, non-sales-based uh, bonus arrangements. And coming back to the behaviours one, um, and this is the handoff to Lindsay, you know, the, the, the number and the outcome of whistleblowing cases that have gone through the, the, their process. All of these sort of things are ways in which this, the sort of uh, the, um, uh, the indicators of culture are, are being measured. Did you want to say something more on um, whistleblowing, Lindsay?
3: Yes, thanks, Mike. I shall take that baton from you. We can practice for the Olympics later. We shall, we shall. <laughs>
0: shall.
3: Yes, yeah, so ever since I um, started at uh, Regulatory Intelligence, I've been covering whistleblowing um, employment tribunals or employment tribunals where there is a, a whistleblowing element. But in particular, the cases I've been covering, it's always been about some kind of regulatory or compliance issue that was flagged by the whistleblower and then it all unravels into a tribunal. And so what I've observed for the last four years of of covering these is really quite a consistent pattern where sometimes what might at first seem like a minor regulatory issue is flagged and then it's not dealt with and then there is almost an orchestrated, or actually in 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 one of the cases where there is actually a, a judgment, a finding that the whistleblower uh, was um, dismissed because of his because he was a whistleblower. Yeah. So in this one particular instance, the, the, there is a judgment from the employment tribunal that uh, an individual was discriminated against and dismissed because of his whistleblowing, and. That in and of itself is actually a breach of FCA regulations. It's it's a breach of CIS-18. And yet the regulator has done nothing with this in almost three years. Um, And so I would argue about when it comes to culture at the moment, firms almost get a free pass for mistreating employees who raise serious um, or or not uh, um, allegations. I, I I won't bore everybody with um, running through loads, but just to just to give a, a flavour of what these individuals are trying to alert their employers to. So in one instance, it was the annual trader attestation process. Um, an individual noticed that there were broken links and. Um, he 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 did um the uh, he noticed how long it had taken him to do it, the process he realized that his colleagues were were many of his colleagues were obviously not doing it because they hadn't realized that the documents the links to the documents they were required to read were broken um neither had the compliance staff who also had to sign the, off the attestation by the way and um and, and so basically there was a, there was a, there was quite a serious fundamental flaw in the in the um bank's attestation um, process so rather than dealing with with that issue which they could have put right you know i i i would even have merited any kind of regulatory action but instead they went after the whistleblower dismissed him and anyway blah 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 that's where that one um just this month i've been listening in on another tribunal to do with um a compliance officer who tried to uh, well, did actually flag some MIFID. He was involved, engaged in the MIFID Two program, um, implementation program, and he flagged a couple of issues which were subsequently reported to the um, the FCA. Um, They're obviously, this is quite recent, so we don't know if the outcome of any FCA action or not. It wasn't disclosed during the employment tribunal, only... Some of the documents backward and forwards from the FCA about the breaches, um, but the, the point was yet again this person alleges that they were then sidelined um, and actually quite a serious malicious email campaign against them was undertaken um, even though the allegations of the email had actually been internally investigated by the bank and proven false, they were still. Then recirculated in the bank six months later. All this was ad, was acknowledged at um, at trial. Um, you know, so so the 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 point is there. There's a history of literally shooting the messenger rather than addressing the issues that are raised, and and so that is a concern. And it is it is a concern for various reasons because, you know, as as Mike said in the um, he Mike referred to the um. ISAS um, draft uh, document, which is was out, is out for consultation right now. Um, it, it's uh, paragraph 68 of that say, says examples of how firms can demonstrate a good culture include having an internal forum for staff to speak openly about their job challenges without fear of recrimination and an effective whistleblowing mechanism that prevers, pre- preserves staff confidentiality and management proactively engage in dialogue and taking steps to make necessary adjustments. So, I mean, so there we have a global standard setting body saying whistleblowing is how you demonstrate that you have a good culture. And yet time after time, you know, through ultimately where these things up and end up in the employment tribunal, we see whistleblowers being mistreated for raising concerns um i th- i think that's probably
2: um well well for me lindsay well oh. you know um just to just just while you pause there i think that that, that 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 your examples there um are fantastic because they there's so much within culture and, and cultural indi- indicators especially that still for firms sits in the too difficult to handle box you know there's you know things the firms talk about um, promoting a message of doing the right thing without really explaining what that means and what what, what evidence is that, what indicates doing the right thing is for them. you know ev- evidence in the impact of, of culture on things like strategic decision making, you know so often that still falls back on, the, on on our human understanding of what is right and wrong. And as you've just demonstrated, you know that gets skewed in a business in a, in a business sense. And, and, you know, training and, and communication messages can be confused. And if that, if that core fundamental definition or, 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 or thought of what culture is in a firm isn't clear, simple, and, and people buy into it. I think, I think there's, your, your examples uh, for me just still prove that firms still have a problem with articulating, uh, indicating and measuring what good culture is, is all about.
3: I know. I know. Rachel wants to come in too, but I just wanted to give one more uh, concrete sort of cultural horror story from the the, the most recent tribunal. Um, it, it, it turns out this bank actually classifies people as employees or non-employees. I mean, it's just such a horrible term in and of itself. You know, they could use the word contractor, which is what they are, but they are classified as employee and non-employee and 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 just um a heads up here if, if for any bank using the term non-employee um the court actually the tribunal actually ruled that just because the bank had called somebody a non-employee does not mean they're a non-employee in terms of UK employment law so um you know it's it's just it was just an interesting aside but Rachel you wanted to say something
0: Sure. I just wanted to make two quick observations. One was that safe to speak up uh, was a uh, long was a long time uh, uh, idea that the FCA was trying to drum into firms. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Lindsay's reported extensively that the FCA hasn't been doing a great job. Uh, managing, uh, whistleblowing and has a big backlog and has had difficulty kind of maintaining trust with the whistleblowing community or whistleblowers. I don't want to say community. Um, then the other point I wanted to pick up on is that whistleblowing is also a good sign that what actually happens at your firm does not, like like Mike said, is inconsistent with your values and your statement about what you think your culture is. Uh, you cannot have a company's ethics policy, for example, if at the same time you can't back it up with safe to speak up or having having unethical a, a, behavior uh, demonstrated, and it sounds like in the cases that Lindsay was just describing on kind of a widespread basis, it, it does leave you thinking that the approach that banks have taken thus far uh, lacks integrity and hasn't been is more of virtue signaling and PR campaigns.
3: Yeah no absolutely and um I don't want to hijack the entire podcast to talk about whistleblowing um and I do have some pointers later on uh, more constructive I just want to add one more thing Rachel earlier on mentioned that um you know there was this approach of bringing in the expensive lawyers um or you know as one of option um I would I would caution in the whistleblowing sphere that if you do bring in the very expensive lawyers you better make sure that they are actually being honest and upfront with the employee that they are investigating that um that they are the companies, they are they are there for the employer and not the employee. I I have um read one judgment in a in a in a case where um the the evidence given by some very senior people, including the CEO in the bank, said that uh, they had they had never said one thing about who the, the lawyers were there to investigate. Unfortunately for them, the employee had the wherewithal to record the conversations, which were then played to the judge. She was not happy. So I'm just um, just laying that out there about you know accountability and honesty.
1: And I would add into that, it's all about the firm and the senior managers in the firm actually taking responsibility for their actions or indeed inactions. And that, for me, absolutely goes to the heart of culture. If you can't take responsibility for your actions, how can that ever be a positive culture in action? So given that we've pretty much said that culture in financial services at the moment is still not where it should be, I'm being tactful and polite there, and given the challenges of changing culture and particularly even more challenging, changing culture in a controlled way. So it changes in the appropriate direction. What do firms begin to do about this? Cause there's no way we can assume that the regulators are not going to, or co- are going to continue their lack of attention on this. Yes. There's been a distraction called the pandemic and all sorts of things, but there's no way regulators aren't going to come back to culture. So, What can and should firms do? Rachel, any thoughts on what firms can and should do, if anything?
0: Well, I am pretty skeptical about this whole thing. I think it's a great idea. I think there are definitely indicators that firms should be picking up on that are pretty obvious. But you need to want to see this stuff. You have to have a kind of level of self-reflection and honesty that is rare amongst many people and uh, bank executives in particular. And I think a good place to start with this would be changing the remuneration policy. You can't uh, say that you have values that are linked to social things and helping your customers and doing all this great stuff if really your culture is all about the bottom line. And I think for the majority of banks, it is all about the bottom line. Um, now, what I think it's going to take is a generational change because I'm very skeptical of the idea that a culture can just change on a dime. Uh. If you think about it in the broader cult context of the world around us, culture change happens in reaction to something. You know, people start behaving differently for a reason. I don't think because regulators say so, that doesn't seem to be a big enough of a reason. For example, look how long it's taken us to get our heads around how we might need to change the way we live and run our lives because of climate change. Uh, it's taken forever and bank cultures in some respects really reflect the cultures in the communities they serve. So, you know, stereotypes to follow, but you know, in the broad sense, we have, uh, a older generation who is now quote unquote in charge in the world, um, they are very uh, skeptical about things like climate change and um, racial justice and you know gender issues, things like that. And we have the same population of gray beards and blue rinses in the board bank boardroom who basically don't think there's anything wrong with the banks. They look at the past with rosy tinted spectacles that block out things like PPI, the great financial crisis, uh horrible mistreatment of uh small and medium business customers and lots of my oh, mortgage prisoners. And on a more so they have this idealized idea of the past and you know on a deeper level, they're really blind to, some of the bad things that are in their past, like you know, connections to slave trade and other not nice things. Um they see themselves as successful, wealthy companies who have been around for a long time. That to them is a symbol of a good culture. They're not interested in what Gen X and Gen Z people think. And based on their attempts to get to grips with what the FCA would like, it's clear they just don't, they don't get it. You can't just say, oh, we have values, um, you know, that we want to be good people and help save the world and everything. When you're letting your customers down, treating your employees like dirt and not taking compliance seriously and letting criminals money launder through your institutions. Long story short, this is going to be a long wait for some more enlightened people to come into banking, if the banks are even able to recruit these people.
2: Yeah, well, I was going to say it is very depressing, actually. Well, um, I mean, but look around the world
0: around us. I mean, people have their heels I, 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 stuck in.
2: I'm not arguing. Uh, I'm not arguing, Rachel, not at all. In fact, I was going to say I come. I, I agree. As depressing as it is. I, I agree with with your points around your skepticism and your generational point. I do think uh, personally that that this is a generational thing. Look we've had we've had 10 plus years now of the, of the financial conduct authority and conduct authorities around the world. Uh, conduct obviously a big part of you know big part, culture is a big part of it. And there's been a lot of work and a lot a lot a lot of of, of good stuff done by the by the regulators, but it just simply isn't happening quite as it should. Um, I actually don't think that culture is a framework like a control framework or a risk framework or a prudential type capital framework. I think culture is is, is much more malleable than that. And I and I think what has tried to happen in the, as as, as well intentioned as it as it has been, what has tried to happen in the last ten whatever it is years is they've tried to turn conduct into a framework, into a risk and control framework when that only answers part of that particular problem. And um as you said, Rachel, to to get the full bang for book here, there needs to be a mindset change. There needs to be a um there needs to be a a change at both the firm thinking and the regulators thinking. The, 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 for, for, for a firm, for example, the old um, you know, define um, 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 measure, monitor, review, uh, and then learn lessons uh, um, approach. Just simply is just too. It just doesn't quite fit the bill, if you see what I mean. As as valuable and as and as and as uh, and, as, uh, uh, and as, as much merit as that approach has, it just doesn't quite answer the cultural questions that are being posed. Now, hopefully. You know, the, the, the things in the industry that are happening will change firms' culture naturally and people and, and, and things will start to change. But as you said, it is a generational thing. Finally, just make, let me make one point, because I know Lindsay's got, got something to say on this, um, is that, you know, it's not only change at the firm level, because the firm, the financial services firms, the banks, et cetera, will generally react to whatever the regulator wants them to do. And that's part of this intangibility where where culture conduct isn't something that a regulator can tell somebody what to do. So from the regulatory perspective, you know, the the Twin Peaks approach adopted by many countries following the global financial crisis um, focused on on prudential and conduct as separate issues. And, you know, a lot of jurisdictions modelled their regulatory approach on that. But for all that focus... Uh, and and the subsequent work that, that i've mentioned that the conduct regulators have done um you know there's still little financial impact for a firm on poor culture on culture within firms now now let me clarify that because what i'm not talking about is enforcement actions where yes i completely appreciate there's been significant fines over over the years for poor conduct for poor culture within firms that have led to significant Customer, uh, customer market, uh, operational um 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 impacts, um, but you know the more routine um, but for the more, but for the prudential side of things, there is a lot been happening for the from on the capital liquidity interest rate type fr- front. Now, this may mean that you know, the regulators don't see conduct and culture as systemic risks to the financial services, whereas they would do uh, a, a significant impact on a bank's balance sheet or, or something like that. And that's great. But there, but there is still, uh, um, but there's no doubt that a series of thresholds or, or some form of requirements, similar to a capital approach, similar to a liquidity approach, but for culture and conduct, would focus mine, firms' minds more on the cultural deficiencies within the industry. Um, now, the bar standards for prudential regulation covers many different different types of risks, but uh, but doesn't really cover the conduct and cultural elements of the financial hit from a c- conduct and cultural failure. Uh, the closest it gets is the operational risk um, uh, uh, risk requirements for capital, but it, now and this is this is my final word so be prepared Lindsay um um I, these are very much random thoughts they, they, these are just trying to think brainstorm out loud how the industry could address some of these cultural issues um as far as I'm aware this sort of approach is not being thought about by regulators um but in the context of addressing the cultural weaknesses maybe there's something in it well, I don't know
3: no um, you make very interesting points mike as as does rachel i i guess i when i said it was depressing what i meant was um i'm not prepared to wait a generation for this to change you know i, I you know everybody is capable of change whether they are dragged to it kicking on screaming or not is a different matter and i think the if to get back on my soapbox about whistleblowing there are some concrete things that could be done right now within the existing rules um i know there are various law changes going on just this week in um in the uk parliament a bill was introduced to um int- uh, to it would create an office of the whistleblower to basically um uh, Make sure that whistleblowers were treated correctly, um, and that includes by by the regulators. Um, but let's be clear: the UK actually has some pretty stringent whistleblowing regulations as it is. Um, you know, CIS eighteen is quite clear about what should happen if a firm mistreats a whistleblower, up to and including them being dismissed. That has never happened. Okay, the firms themselves, you know, have not done that. So, you know, that's that's one thing. They're not doing it themselves. I would heartily recommend any firm that is involved in a whistleblowing employment tribunal pays for a transcript of the proceedings, and their compliance teams sit down and actually read what is being said, you know, about the culture in their firms and take note you know whether whether the, the the case reaches a conclusion or not and i've seen several where the whistleblower has just given up when faced with very expensive lawyers you know um because the you know they ha- for the most part are um litigants in person so so that's one and then it's, it's right behind that you know the fca really has to step up and do something especially where it's got um judgments that say you know th- th- an individual was was dismissed because they were a whistleblower. You, enforce your own regulations. um you know, these will you know, you only have to do it once or twice and and the flip side of that is when a lot of very senior industry people said quite publicly that the action taken against Jess Staley was not sufficient, and they said it would act as a uh, a signal that the regulator did not take whistleblowing seriously, and you know you, you have to say that that call that call was right. But I, I just want to quickly flag um, a couple more points. Um, the there is an ISO 37002 uh, draft out at the moment, um, which uh, was actually one of the writers was a chap called Andrew, uh, Andrew Samuels who was in the whistleblowing department in the team at Barclays that caught Jess Staley. And so some of the learnings from how they caught him are in that ISO. So that's out, firms, you know, read it, I will put a link to it in the, um, in the show notes. Um, likewise, the um, EU whistleblowing directive, I know it's not called that, it's called um, the Directive on the Protection of Persons Who Report Breaches of Union Law, Again, that should be in force across the EU um, by December. It flips the burden of proof, which is an interesting concept. So employers have to prove that they have not discriminated a whistleblower. So that means record keeping, um, etc. Which I know from the employment tribunals, I've covered. Notes of meetings of key meetings cannot be produced; they don't exist. Mobile phones. Suddenly go missing or are gifted to people's children, um. I I kid you not, you know. So you know, the burden of proof aspect, which again is something that the UK lawmakers are thinking about in terms of uh, reviewing UK law, um. But but on a on the positive side, I I, I want to recommend, and I'll, again, it'll pop it in the show notes. There's a paper by Kyle Walsh and Stephen Stubbin Stubbin. I apologise if I've butchered his name, um they uh, it's called throw out your assumptions about whistleblowing whistleblowers um and i really would recommend reading it because they um evidence that actually um that whistleblowing is an essential part of a healthy firm culture and also in reduce the more and they looked at they reviewed i think it was like something like two million whistleblowing reports from 1200 firms and um it, it showed what they could track was that the more whistleblowing internal whistleblowing reports that firms had the um the fewer regulatory um fines they ended up having i'm 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 not doing the paper justice, but it's, it's worth the read and I'll put it in, in the show notes, but so whistleblowing and I, it's, 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 you know, it's called whistleblowing, but actually it's just employees pointing out for the most part that something is not right. Um, You know, those kind of notifications can be very helpful to firms in becoming better at what they do. And I will leave it there, Susanna. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Yes. I mean, I think leveraging any kind of speaking up has to be a positive for firms, but they have to see it as a positive. Um, And we're back to taking responsibility. They have to take responsibility that unsurprisingly, it's not perfect. Therefore, something needs to change. I do think we've had the, the most amazing and wide ranging discussion on all of this. And I think if we had to sort of boil it down, culture is just tricky to do tricky to get right tricky to measure tricky to keep going in a positive direction so given the the sheer range of what's being discussed as we usually end with podcasts um the takeaways the takeaways for compliance officers Rachel given all of the things we've just discussed takeaways how how what would you like to throw out there
0: okay I hate to be negative again but this, this is a don't-do takeaway. Don't conflate monitoring and surveillance of employee behavior as some kind of cultural transformation tool. Uh, this has essentially corporate spying and monitoring in the name of making sure that our employees are following all the various rules has become... Really normal, and part of that's because it's uh been mandated by uh regulators through market abuse regulation, etc. So, uh, unfortunately, we've seen this uh, kind of blossom in a in an unpleasant way, and uh, a non-financial services example. Was H uh, and M H&M in Germany was spying, quote unquote, spying on its employees, gathering all this personal data. They were fined thirty five million euros, I think, uh, by the one of the local uh, data privacy regulators in Germany last year. Barclays uh, tried to roll out some very intrusive uh, employee surveillance technology that went down like a lead balloon. And I think it's being investigated now by the UK's uh, uh, information commissioner's office. But the real point here is that surveillance is bad for your firm's culture. Uh, I've written about this many times. It creates a trust-free environment. If you are systematically surveilling your employees, you're sending the message to them that you do not trust them. That is not good for culture. And people should know that this kind of management has roots in some pretty sinister places uh, like the East German Stasi and other authoritarian regimes. It's also been traced back to practices uh, that were started on US cotton tobacco uh plantations to monitor slaves so these are all humongously negative things but they've become super popular because tech firms are selling you this stuff as a uh some kind of solution it's not you are just causing yourself a a lot this is going to cause a lot of unintended consequences because people are going to move off surveil surveil channels very quickly and they're going to have bad feelings about the workplace. Thank you. Yes. I mean, and and another very
1: recent example is IKEA France, where not only was the firm fined, but the chief executive of IKEA France was fired and personally fined a couple of hundred thousand euros. So it does come home to bite people really pretty hard. Um, Mike, takeaways from all of this.
2: So very briefly, um, I think that um, culture uh, and the approach to culture needs to have, to have the mindset developed based on the last 10 years of, of conduct regulation, perhaps, both by the firms and by the regulators. Um, I think that what's happened in the last 10 years has been, has been a good base but for me, it isn't quite there yet, and we need to develop that further and change the bits that we that we that we need to. I think that the key to, uh, to the second point here is the key is meaningful. Whatever indicators, whatever metrics, however you however you determine to uh, monitor your culture, it needs to be meaningful. Um, as we've said throughout this podcast, there's a lot of work going on to running around looking at management information and data on all sorts of different things which, frankly, uh, are questionable in, in uh, measures of, of, of culture. Finally, and, and just a footnote, and perhaps to to, to end up my piece on a positive note, is that we're not at that future yet. Regulators still have demands of firms on culture, uh, and therefore compliance officers and firms still need to be able to do what the regulators want, to develop this cultural approach to, to use indicators and to, to evidence tone from the top, to evidence governance, to evidence uh, the right attitudes towards re- reward and performance. And there are plenty of frameworks out there which will allow you to do that, one of which could very well be the use of culture audits or some form of independent audit of the firm, which may have more weight than a set of criteria or metrics within the firm.
1: Thank you, Mike. Yes, I I think um, anything you can meaningfully do to measure something qualitative, really go to town on because that will give you the best insight possible and indeed the best evidence that you are doing the right things in the right way. So, Lindsay, what about you? Takeaways for compliance officers.
3: Just on that last point about evidencing, I I would suggest to boards that if they are not getting... Uh, information on the number of speak ups and what is done with that information within their organization. Um and perhaps even benchmarking what their number is against their competitor of a similar size, just so you have some kind of idea about whether, you know whether your system is actually working or not. Um, you know, and, and don't be afraid of um, you know, whistleblowers, don't be afraid of them. Embrace them is is um is is what I would say to compliance compliance uh, people listening. Um, I just I'm going to go off at a complete tangent here and throw in something probably we'll come back to in a in the, in the coming year. But I think a big culture thing in the next twelve months will be how firms get their employees back into the office or implement hybrid working, etc. We're already starting to see, you know. Um, a split actually, Um, you know, UBS have said, I think the mass majority of their employees, their workforce can work from home um, at least part of the time. Um, Whereas you've got the predominantly US banks saying, no, 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 get back in the office now. Um, So um, yeah, that will be an interesting one to watch. There's all kinds of issues around hybrid working, I I, I know, but, um, and what firms do with it will be a big culture piece in the next 12 months, I'd say.
1: Yes, thank you. And and um, I'd add into the mix, there are some firms that have said, don't bother coming back into the office. We're simply not doing that anymore. But I think the messaging around that is a really interesting cultural indicator in and of itself. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. I'll include links to several articles and the documents and books and notes we were talking about in the episode notes together with the usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Now, last but not least, as ever, we would very much appreciate it if you take the time to review the podcast and do let us know if you have any suggestions for future topics. Thanks again for listening.
0: Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.